That, uh, that music of the 40s I would call musical gymnastics or calisthenics. That stuff is, uh, that stuff is lively and energetic. I'm going to have a chat with my parents when I see them this afternoon. But, uh, you know, when I, I love the music of the 60s and the 70s. They were always giving me trouble about it. I think, wait a second. That stuff was mild compared to the 40s. Anyway, it's a, it's a great, great musical. And uh, if you haven't been there yet, I encourage you to be here this afternoon or tonight. I got the set all here. You know, this couch is really tempting. It's kind of like I could sit in this couch and do theology pericomo style or something, you know? Like, wow, just a little laid back. It's tempting, I'm thinking it. Yeah, I might sit there later, I'm not sure. You know, Dwayne is exactly right about the setting of when Christ came. It was not a good time. It was a very difficult time. In fact, God had been silent for nine generations. Yes, there was the Old Testament scriptures, but there had been no new, new revelation. For 450 years, God had not spoken. And as far as the models of power and authority that Mary was, uh, was raised under, it was a series of uh, conquest crazy nations. Uh, first, the, the, starting at least in the, in the context that if in affected and influenced her life would be the Greek culture. Now, the Greeks were, uh, were committed to making religion sophisticated. Uh, for them, worship was, uh, was the human body. And a worship service to the Greeks was, uh, was art and drama and athletics. And uh, their gods were mostly in competition with them. And they had a tremendous impact on transforming the way culture thought, interacted. In fact, the Hellenization of the Mediterranean fringe in the, the Middle East and, the, and Northern Africa, and then on into the West has been with us for the last 2,000 years. In our educational forms, our cultural styles, the Greeks have imposed their culture. And, and then shortly thereafter, of course, the Romans conquered the, the Greek, but it didn't chase out the enculturation of the Greeks. The Romans just adopted all of their gods and had a more brutal form of power. In 63 BC, Pompey marched into Jerusalem and Israel was under the occupation of Rome for several hundred years. In 37 BC, Herod was declared king of Israel. He was an Edomite, not a Jew. And we all know how notorious he was and what kind of a power model he was for the people of Mary's time. Notorious for his ruthlessness and wickedness. In fact, Herod killed three sons, one uncle, and executed a mother-in-law. His leadership was characterized by wanting more, being on top, exercising power, becoming important, paid attention to. This was the milieu. This was the context when the message came, God is with you. In fact, um, this relentless agenda to transform the whole of the world and enculturate it in humanism, which was the Greek agenda, and a very powerful force is not dissimilar to the context we live in. This is where we're at. God being misrepresented, culture, worshiping, humanism, all about power and authority and control, all about keeping people down. In fact, um, I don't know if any of you... Uh, Saw Anderson Cooper this week, but he had a program on the Taliban. I caught a little bit of it last night. Do you realize that the, the Taliban are declaring that everything they're doing is because of God? 
Do you understand that when we go out into our community this past week, this weekend now, and invite people to our programming and the upcoming Christmas presentations, we're going to be telling them that everything we're doing is because of our God? It's pretty confusing out there. Who is God? Which God representation is the real God? Say, well, wasn't there religious stuff going on in Mary's time? Oh, yeah, there was religious stuff. In a backlash and response against the compromise of, of, of the moral quagmire of the Greeks and the Romans and the multiple gods, in an effort to recover the Jewish identity, there was a sect that rose up called the Pharisees. They packaged religion in a legalistic model with rituals and Rules and burdened and smothered the people under layers of it. Their leadership was characterized by the fruits of positional entitlement. Oh yeah, Mary had seen power. She'd seen power from the the corrupt, godless culture around her. She had seen power corruption within the religious sector around her. It was then... Power, power, control, control, not for the good of the population, but to preserve power for the cultural elite. It was then, in this setting, that God dispatched a messenger. His name is Gabriel. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? A messenger to carry his word to his human creation. To clarify who God is. To clarify his being, to clarify his doing. I, I wonder to myself, you know, there's been 2,000 years of now of silence. Yes, we have the scriptures, God speaks. But 2,000 years of encrusted, bad examples and represent, misrepresentations of God. I just wonder how much longer Jesus Christ is going to stop himself from coming and declaring he is the king of the universe. So we work. We work diligently. And so he brings this message specifically to a little-known, engaged girl in the backwater town called Nazareth. Nothing worthwhile ever came out of Nazareth, did it? At least that's what the people of the time said. A town in Galilee, a town that nobody really cared about. It helps me to get a better picture of who my God is, you know. Maybe nobody else knows about you or where you are or how badly you need him or something. God knows exactly where you are. So I want to eavesdrop this morning on a conversation that God had through the angel Gabriel with Mary. And I want to pick out five outstanding glories of God in a milieu whereby we live that misrepresents our God to show his distinctiveness to you all over again. It won't be new to you, but I hope it's fresh and exciting all over again because it's about God. In the sixth month, verse 26, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. 
for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Our Father, we pray this morning as we gather in this room in a culture not overly dissimilar to the first advent, to the time when Christ broke into the world the first time. Oh, Lord, there are differences. We realize that we're not occupied here in Canada. In some ways, we are pretty occupied by the evil one. Oh, there aren't multiple gods. And then again, I guess there are multiple gods. Power and authority abuse? Yeah, I think so. But most predominantly, Father, there is an incredible agenda to misrepresent God. We see it all around us. We hear it. We see it lived out, Lord. And our world is incredibly confused about who you really are. Not because of you. You've made yourself clear. You've made yourself known. The creation declares the glory of God. The heavens proclaim and preach every second to a listening audience of your greatness. Your word is clear and declares the truth. The Son of Jesus Christ has represented everything you are. He is the express image of the invisible God. Your church is called upon to testify and witness to the legitimacy and reality of who you are, Lord. There, there have been failures. Our lives have not shaped up. And so, Father, to this context, we submit ourselves this morning and just ask you to be pleased to reveal your glories to us all over again, that it might encourage our hearts and strengthen us, Lord. I think maybe there's somebody in here who isn't saved, doesn't know you. I think there's somebody in here today who believes in God, but they're not related to God not following Christ. So, Father, because it is your word and is the word of salvation, I pray that the Spirit of God would be pleased to make a special visitation into those hearts today. Draw them to yourself. And on into the afternoon and tonight, Lord, be glorified in us, be made known through us, Lord, I pray. Now, may you use these words from your servant to minister to your people, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, I wondered to myself as I looked at this text all over again, why was Mary so greatly troubled at this declaration. Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I don't think my reaction would be troubled and wondering what kind of a greeting this might be. Now I know the the traditional comment is, well, if an angel showed up and said that, showed up and talked to you all of a sudden, you might be troubled and ask what kind of a greeting. I suppose I would. But you know, as I thought about the context that Mary was raised in and what was happening all around her and based upon the fact that that there had been nine generations of silence and all she had seen is abusive leadership and power brokers that exploited people, I'm wondering if she was a little bit perplexed about this greeting that was coming from heaven. Is this going to be another power play? Is this going to be another act of abuse? What kind of a greeting is this going to be? And the angel says, Mary, greetings you who are highly graced. 
The Lord is with you. And says to her in verse 3, don't be afraid, Mary. I'm going to say it again. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to repeat what I just said. The message I'm bringing, the kind of greeting I'm bringing is a greeting of grace from God. The king of the universe wants to place upon you his love, undeserved favor of God. He cares about you, Mary. The last quality that Mary would have expected of people in power, I believe, is grace. Now, if you have... Think at all. There has never been a human construct in all of history in, con- in, in conceptualizing a human idea of God that's included grace. Not ever. The Greeks in their plethora of gods did not come up with a gracious God. The Romans never had a gracious God. Human beings never construe a gracious God. Ever. You know why that is? Because when we, we, we attempt to make a God in our own image, the last thing we're going to make is a gracious God. You know why? Because we're not gracious. We're not. We're not gracious to one another. And, and Gabriel stands before her and says, Mary, this powerful God of the universe is gracing you. Now, um, The idea that a nondescript 15-year-old in a despised town could be favored to her is beyond comprehension. Yes, she had come to believe that Joseph cared about her. But that someone in power would care? This is the greeting that God brings, the first greeting after his silence of nine generations. Don't miss this. The silence is broken after nine generations, after 450 years. And the first message is, I am a God of grace. I am a dispenser of love to the undeserving. Oh, you know, we... um, we can't even do that in our own marriages. We, we can't even offer each other undeserved love in our own marriages. We struggle with our relationships. We struggle to be gracious. And God, the one who's abused and exploited and rebelled against, is gracious. By the way, Mary is chosen by God to showcase who and what God is. God is gracious. He's full of grace. Now, by the way, Mary is graced. Not full of grace. Not a dispenser of grace. Mary is graced. Only God is full of grace. Jesus Christ is Full of truth and grace. Mary was graced. Just like you and I. If we have a relationship with God. We have had to be graced by God. We learn to be gracious. Herod on the other hand. Forces allegiance by fear and threats. That's what she had seen. And how does God draw people to himself? He favors them. He graces them. Mary's like, am I hearing you right? The message from the power broker of heaven is grace. Now look, if you go hunting for merit or worth or strategic skills in Mary in some way, you strip away the point and the truth. Anything Mary was or is or ever became, or we for that matter, is because of God's grace. God's heart goes out to people who are not all that because none of us has a right to be all that. And by the way, it's the only way you can be saved. For by what? Grace 
are you saved? Through faith. There is no amount of merit that we could collect that would take care of our sin. It's impossible. But by God's grace. And so this is a most amazing message. So, so the first standout of the glory of God is for the undeserving of which each of us are. His favor. His grace. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now secondly, the norm, powerful normally use and abuse and exploit and dispose of. But God saves people. Look down in your uh, Bibles to verse 46 and 47. Mary breaks into song as she expresses the heart and says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoiced in God my Savior. For those in bad condition... Yes, Mary needed salvation. She declares it herself. She calls God her Savior. As nice a person as Mary must have been. She is right here by declaration testifying to the fact that she is rejoicing in God's salvation for her, in the forgiveness of her sins. So she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. Now my spirit can rejoice in God, my Savior. God has saved me. God saves people because they need saving. This is what makes the attempt to bury the message of Christmas in our culture so absurd. I mean, burying any sort of religious memory cannot cleanse the human condition of sin, I can assure you. Pretending that spirituality is not real or is somehow not relevant is absolutely reckless and is, in fact, a death sentence. It's it's removing the only antidote known to the pandemic of sin. Somehow, in our setting, we have become convinced that if we pretend there's no religious faith or no spirituality, that we will be able to all pretend to get along as well. I received an interesting article Greg Peel sent along to me last this week. About, it was from the Star. It was an essay. Thanks, Greg, for this, by the way. It was written by a, a woman, and I, I, I have no reason to believe she's a Christian, but she makes an outstanding observation in this essay about the, the ludicrous nature of our culture. She's entitled the essay, Winter Feast. That is the name of my daughter's middle school concert in Toronto next week, for which she has been writing invitations, trying to figure out how to word her merry salutations without referring to Christmas, Hanukkah, or any other religious tradition. Mention of spiritual beliefs has been strictly forbidden by her teachers. Don't write down Jesus, one of her instructors said adamantly, reinventing the idea that one cannot take the name of the Lord in vain. No reference to religious tradition allowed. Somebody might be offended. We are merely gathering at this time of year to celebrate, hmm, well, something. How about the advent of slush? Yes, that's it. Hooray for slush. And we shall feast on our imported clementines. In the month of December, future anthropologists will note the city of Toronto famously gathered its children together to ritually observe salted snow and the appearance of small oranges from South America. Really? How far have we drifted from the point of multiculturalism in one of the most multicultural cities in the world? Our children may not be racist, but I'll tell you what they are becoming. Religiously illiterate. Because they're not allowed to acknowledge there's any point whatsoever to the holiday traditions of the citizenry. 
We have been so caught up in our fear of imposing a dominant religion on one another over the past 20 or 30 years that we have managed to throw the entire subject of human spirituality overboard. That's quite a feat. I'll not read all of it to you, but... At a time of rising bigotry against Muslims and ongoing prejudice against Jews, ignorance about religion is dangerous. As one writer states, if you think Sunni and Shiite are the same because they're both Muslim, and you've been told Islam is about peace, you won't understand what's happening in Iraq. If you get into an argument about gay rights or capital punishment, and someone claims to quote the Bible or the Quran, do you know it's so? Do you? How are children prepared to understand what motivates the faithful in any religion or what the nature of the sacred even means or why we shouldn't burn scriptural texts? Ignorance leads inevitably to disrespect. I had a conversation with an adolescent girl recently who said she didn't believe in God because there was no proof and she needed proof. Find her some proof, okay? In the meantime, she'll be busy shopping at Hollister's. This, whatever you call it, the season where we celebrate slush and oranges. An article in The Star by Patricia Pearson. To this culture... God says, I'm with you. I'll save you. The only way a soul can honor God, the only way a spirit can rejoice in the Lord is if he's our Savior. That's what Mary calls forth. My soul can honor the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Otherwise, souls are dead. Spirits are disconnected from God the agenda of the evil one. Sin and willful rebellion and rejection of God keeps the soul dead and a sin and a spirit disconnected from the life-giving spirit because God is spirit and those who would worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And by the way, unless that state changes, in other words, the dead soul and the disconnected spirit, unless that state changes, eternal disconnect and death is finalized at physical death. Do we understand that? I think we do, because I think that's our passion. I think that's why we are so urgently out there pleading with people to come and hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you are favored of God today to be in this room, to hear the message of truth. Do you realize that? To hear this greeting all over again, Your response to welcome him will bring you salvation. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Urging, pleading, God is a savior. He saves people. Now, thirdly, some of of God's richest blessings that are that are demonstrated in the scriptures, particularly to childless people, has been to turn barrenness into fertility. In fact, just before this greeting, God has announced that Elizabeth, Zachariah are going to have a child. It's been the dream of their lives. But in this conversation with Mary, God was about to do the impossible. He was to cause a baby to come to pass in the womb of a virgin. And so Mary rightly says, how will this be? Let me ask you a question this morning. What does a virgin woman have to offer a God who is planning his whole program of human salvation around a Messiah with flesh and blood? Can I ask you that again? I mean, this is the greeting that came to her. Let me ask you this question again. How in the world? And what does a virgin woman have to offer a God who is planning his whole program of human salvation 
around a Messiah with flesh and blood. That's why she turns and says, I'm just not able. How will this be? For that matter, what do you or I have to offer a God, our God, with our brokenness, our inabilities, our liabilities, our habits, our hang-ups? To be honest with you, I, I feel like Mary almost every day when I look in the mirror. I get up, I look at myself, and I think, how will this be? How will God make my life a blessing today? I'm so full of liabilities. I'm so full of inabilities. I have so many hang-ups and issues and baggage. How will this be? And then I notice in this text that, that fundamentally, I, I, and I've come to realize that in God's response here, our, our disabilities, whether physical or emotional or background or whatever they are, are only disabilities to us, not to God. Because with God, nothing is impossible. For nothing, Mary, is impossible. How will this be? Mary, nothing is impossible for God. Not a thing. Let that roll around in your head every single day. You get up and you look, oh, Lord, how? The inabilities, the disabilities, the hang-ups, the hurts, the habits, the stuff. Rick, with you, this is impossible. And if you're going to try to do this on your own strength, you're going to try to run your own game, it's going to be a disaster. But with God, nothing's impossible. That's what I love about it. I mean, the, the power brokers around them were just seeking to further disable people. And this greeting comes, no, for those unable, God enables. Nothing's impossible with God. It's the great news about the glory of God. God's word, though impossible sounding, is made possible because God says so. The same God who spoke the universe into existence from nothing. He speaks the universe into existence. Everything that you see, both visible and invisible, he spoke into existence. This is the God who's greeting Mary. This is the God who graced you. This is the God who saved you. This is the God who speaks to you. This is the God who, who works through your life every day. He speaks your inabilities into ability. You know, I am pretty excited about the fact that that my real business card, although it says Pastor Calvary Baptist Church, is really assistant to the king of the universe. And and so is yours. You understand that? That, that? That God has has brought you into his family and, and he's given you, it says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, you are his masterpiece, you are his workmanship. You are the one he's created to, to do works in advance, uniquely created. So, so we, are, we are personal assistants, we're PA to the God of the universe, the king of the universe. Show that around to people when they ask you who you are. Well, I'm a... I'm a PA, the king of the universe. Say, well, okay, we need to take you to the hospital as soon as possible. No, no, really, I am. I am a personal assistant to the king of the universe, and so are you. It's, it's not, it's, by the way, it's, it's not because of some sort of specific training you had or, or not some special or profound internship that you have had. It, it's not on the basis of some preparatory schooling that, that you have been put through. It's not because of any credentials that you have. And it's not because of any special accomplishments that you have demonstrated. And it's not because of the likelihood of any success that you're going to bring or greatness. And it's not because of those amazing and desirable qualities that you have. It's all because you are willing to make yourself available to God.
And so because of that, the fourth glory of God, he doesn't need any special abilities. How favored we are. Do you feel favored, honestly? That God loves you and cares for you and works through your life? To be wanted by God. I mean, what kind of a greeting is this, Mary? God wants you, loves you. Let that, let that sink in. To be wanted by God. Every day you get up, God wants you, loves you. Maybe nobody else wants you on their team, but God does. And so her response, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. This is the fourth glory of God. For the willing, his willingness. But note this. To be willing in the sense Mary was willing, must come without conditions, no strings attached. See, um, if you're like me, I, I want to be willing, but I always want kind of an easy assignment. Lord, could you, could you make my assignment with minimal discomfort? And, and if it's possible for me to keep just a few of the hang-ups and habits... That'd be even like icing on the cake. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the kind of thing I'm like, yes, I'm willing, but that would be, that would be what I'm looking for. If, if there's a, a fast food fullness, like that's what I'm into. Lord, give me the spirit in kind of like a drive-through window kind of way, you know? I, I don't want this to be painful. I don't want to get out of my car. I want to keep the heater on, and I want to keep listening to my Christmas tunes, you know? That's the kind of thing that I'm willing to do. Mary said, may it be to me as, just exactly how you've said. Now, um, have you thought about what that means? I think she thought about it. She didn't have a lot of time to think about it, but I think she thought a lot about it later on. You know what this means, possibly? Signing up to total community rejection. Signing up to the possibility that no man would ever want to have her. And by the way, if you think that's far-fetched, it says in the Matthew text that Mary was found with child. And she was betrothed to be married. (laughs) Now that's a double whammy problem. All right? Think about this. Think about what the community was thinking at the time. Not only is Mary immoral, she's unfaithful too. Because she has betrayed her fiancé. And by the way, that didn't change over the years. The city of the town of Nazareth didn't wholeheartedly embrace Messiah. No, 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 they spent the rest of many of their lives believing that Mary was immoral and unfaithful. That's who they thought she was. And she knew when she was signing up for this job, oh, listen, I I don't want to for one second take away the glory and the splendor and the joy that was in her heart. I mean, it was expressed. To be the mother of Messiah, I'm signing up for that, she said. No question. Be it to me as, as you say, whatever, but... But don't mistake that this was a tough journey. This was a tough task. God didn't give her a light assignment. And then if that wasn't enough, she meets this godly man named Simeon when Jesus was just a few days old. And what does he tell her uh, her life is going to be? In Luke chapter 2, verse 35... He says, um, 
a sword will pierce your own soul too. He prophesies about Jesus, saying the child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. Many sorrows await you as these kingdoms clash, Mary. And she says, be it to me as you have said, See, when Jesus detoxifies you from yourself and what you have been made of, it sometimes gets really nasty and really painful and really filled with awful. Because going cold turkey on sin is tough. But a servant submits. She declared herself the Lord's servant. Now listen. She wasn't submitting to a power-hungry, oppressive dictator. She was submitting to a kind, gracious, benevolent king who favored her. So what do you have to offer a God who says he will save you? I know what I have to say about that. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. There's one final uh, point I want to make mention of this morning. Actually, before I leave there, I just want to make a side note to our, our youth who always gather in this service. Mary was available to God for a great assignment because she had kept herself pure. There's a underlying statement in this story, in this text, of the value of sexual discipline. Let me move on to the fifth glory. I want to uh, point out that uh, to find this one, you've got to go to John chapter 2. Perhaps one of the most profound statements Mary ever made. She's uh, had some time to observe Jesus the son that she bore. Which, by the way, uh, the time she said this, we certainly know more about Jesus than she did. She certainly would learn of him as her savior. But she offered this most profound counsel at the time. And I like the way the New American Standard puts it better than the NIV. It was when Jesus was turning the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. And she says in verse 5, Do whatever he says. But I like the NASB, which says, Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary had come to trust that God loved her and cared for her, that she could count on him. And she, had lear- she was learning and pondering the things about this son she bore and this Jesus and had come to realize that this was an amazing figure. And so she says, um, this one who has power, you can trust. This power broker is, is one who has authority that, that will not hurt you or exploit you. And I I believe this fifth glory as we wind up this morning is for those who trust in God. His purposeful, personal plan is yours. Let's make no mistake about it in this final contrast that I want to draw out this morning. Satan wants to keep people dead. He wants to keep them dead in their sins. Wants to keep their soul dead, their spirit dead. And if he can keep them dead long enough for them to die, he can keep them from God forever. That's the basic agenda. It's a very simple agenda out there. That every time you sow the seed of God's word, Satan tries to get rid of it because his only agenda for this world of people is to keep them dead spiritually long enough so they will die physically so that they'll be Uh, forever separated from God. That's it. That's his agenda. It's the agenda of all 
whose hearts have been filled with the wickedness of Satan and evil, who has continually exploited and abused and killed and destroyed people. That's what he does. For his sordid glory. Not for people's good. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. Because God wants to bring people to life. God, in contrast, wants to save people from their dead situation and bring them to life. He is the life giver. Oh, yes, he does this for his glory. And for our good. Because our God needs nothing, therefore he is free, fully free to give. And so the Son of God, who had a perfectly amazing existence from eternity past, agrees to interrupt eternity with this moment of creation and salvation. Because our God is a gracious God and a saving God. A God who's willing to those who are willing. A God who takes our inabilities and makes us able. A God who would come to earth and who would die to love us. There is no comparison in all the world, in anything that any civilization has ever conjured up to our God. Oh yes, in the milieu where Mary was, there were all kinds of gods and all kinds of power brokers and all kinds of abuse and all kinds of exploitation. What kind of greeting is this? Mary, did you know when you said whatever he says to you, do it, that he was the one who wouldn't use us. He would use up himself for us. Let your heart meditate on on this video. Jesus Christ interrupted his eternal forever with the crucifixion that he might bring us into the eternal joy of God. Did you know that? I, uh, my heart is always troubled when I think that there might be some people who have not embraced this truth in their lives. That's why the urgency of this time of year, the urgency of this weekend, the urgency of this ministry within our, our community is, is uh, so extreme. And Satan is warring so desperately against it, burying the message under layers and layers of absurdity. Let me just say that the offer of salvation is open to you this morning. What kind of greeting is this? This is the greeting of a gracious God who is willing. He is not willing that any should perish. Whosoever will may come. To the willing, he is willing. I'm going to close in prayer. And if you, uh, if God is drawing your heart, you're here this morning without him. Uh, Pastor Kelvin, Pastor Dwayne, myself will be here. Pastor Ken up here at the front, you come and talk to us. Come and talk to us about um, the offer of a gracious God of salvation to you. Our Father, thank you so much for the awesome experience of reviewing together this morning the glories of God all over again. Just five. There are so many more, Lord. We find ourselves in the midst of a culture not dissimilar to the first time 
the first advent of Christ. Surely, Lord, you're going to come soon. Surely you're going to come and clarify all the misrepresentations. How dare creation defy any knowledge of its creator? And so, our Father, I pray that you would give us more resolve and a greater passion to represent you accurately in our lives. You have said, We are your witnesses. We testify to the truth. Oh, Father, I pray that we might be gracious people, that we might be ready and quick to proclaim the salvation of God, to glorify and honor you by our soul and let our spirits rejoice in the Lord. I pray, Father, that we would turn all of our inabilities and liabilities over to you and believe that you are the God of the impossible. I pray, Father, that that we would make ourselves totally available and willing, not to the assignment we want, but as servants of the living God to what you want to do in and through our lives. And that, Father, would we please be people that whatever you say to do, We do it because we trust you. We know you have our very best interests at heart because you love us. And Lord, I pray for those hearts here who are being shut down, eyes that are being blinded, ears that are being stopped, hearts that are being crusted by layers of satanic opposition. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would wipe that all away. And that the work of the gracious, saving power of God would be known in this place this morning and in this place this afternoon and in this place this evening, Father. For your glory's sake, I pray. Amen.